Welcome to a continuation of the HEC Talk series brought to you by the Charlotte AHEC Practice Support Team. For this round of talks, we will be sharing best practice tools and tips helpful to today's primary and specialty care providers through a series of podcasts. The Charlotte AHEC Practice Support Team has been providing support to independent practices since 2009. We currently coach practices in the Charlotte, North Carolina region on initiatives like patient-centered medical home, the quality payment program, and other incentive programs. Let's get into today's podcast. Hello, this is Erin Cloutier. Our topic today is about social-emotional screening tools and how to implement them in your clinic. What is it you really need to know about your patients? And how do you gather that information to provide the most information to the clinician and the best care to the patient? For so long, clinicians focused on physical health of patients, listening to the heart, checking reflexes, blood work or x-rays, and now we know that there's so much more to keeping a patient healthy. Today, we have Dr. Martha Edwards with us to help guide you through the ins and outs of implementing screening tools in your clinical practice. Dr. Edwards is with Atrium Health and practices general pediatrics. She is very involved in community health and could be found most Fridays for the last 15 years volunteering at a local free clinic. She's been recognized for her role as a local advocate for children by the South Carolina State Board of Education, South Carolina Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and has received the Champion for Children Award from Rock Hill, South Carolina's number one question campaign, Is It Good for the Children? Dr. Edwards has recently focused on integrating mental health into the medical home. Welcome, Dr. Edwards. We're so glad to have you here with us today. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. So let's get started. Dr. Edwards, for those who are new to social-emotional screening tools, could you give us a brief explanation of what they are? So screening tools are just tools to help us reliably identify patients whose health is being impacted by mental health issues. So kind of like getting a lab. We get all the vital signs when a patient walks in, and now in our practice we get I call it, you know, just another vital sign. And that screening, you know, when I, I look at the blood pressure, I look at the pulse, I look at the weight. Probably the thing I look at first is that is my mental health screening tool these days. Thank you. So why should clinicians implement screening tools in the routine care of patients? So we know that from recent research that actually, and this number sounds high, but 50% of children have some sort of mental health issue at some point in their lives before age 18. Um, And those things can be things like ADHD, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, um, adjustment disorders. 22% of kids have a mental health issue with severe impairment or serious impairment. And we really do see in our office a flood of patients lately with, with mental health issues. Often those issues will manifest as unusual or confusing symptoms. We know that mental health affects physical health and vice versa. Things like adrenaline and cortisol affect heart rate, blood pressure, you know, and just kind of the way you feel. Um, But we need to help our patients understand that often their mental health issues are affecting their physical health. And we really need to treat both things. I think we often ignore the mental health issues and treat the physical symptoms. Um, And again, those are symptoms rather than treating the underlying cause, 
which might be anxiety or depression and is harder to get at. We need to identify issues that may need referrals to counselors or psychiatrists, but more important, if we identify the issues early enough, we might be able to hand them in our, handle those in our primary care office or keep them from getting to such a severe point that they need further intervention um, by just getting our patients to recognize that there's something going on. That's great information for our listeners. Do you have a story that you might share about how screening tools helped you with a patient? So I have um, a screening tool I really like. It's called the Patient Symptom Checklist 17, and we use it in all our 5- to 10-year-old well-check um, patients. And it's a, just a 17-question questionnaire, and it divides the um, answers into internalizing symptoms, so anxiety-type symptoms, ADHD-type symptoms, or externalizing symptoms. And again, it's just a screening questionnaire, so it's not a diagnostic tool, but it just kind of tells me, oh, this child has a high internalizing school. So I wonder if there's a lot of anxiety in this child. So a lot of times I'll get a a patient with a borderline score or a lot of those questions, you know, that might be ADHD or those anxious questions. And I'll say to the mom, is your child a worrier? Does your child worry a lot? And almost always I'll get, oh my gosh, yes. And, you know, asking the same question over and over again and, and those types of things. And I'll say, you know, great, that's, that actually can be a strength. Worrying can be a good thing, but let's make sure it doesn't get in the way of this child's schooling or education going forward or relationships with other people. And we'll talk about things that mom can do, reading or dad, reading with this child at bedtime about anxiety-type stories and what to do with that, maybe creating a worry box that the child can open once a day and take out all the worries and talk about them and then put them back in to take out another time. Using a, you know, a pinwheel to practice breathing for worrying, just to kind of decrease the heart rate and blood pressure with that long exhale. So we'll talk about things like that um, just to see if we can, you know, later on when that child's 12 or 13, not coming back with panic attacks in my office. Those are great tips, Dr. Edwards, and I'm sure your patients and your parents are so glad to have some tools that they can use to help their children and to help themselves for the older children in your practice. So now that we know the what and the why of screening tools, how do you go about choosing screening tools that are the best fit for your practice? So we all know that you have limited time in a visit. You probably have a 15 or a 30 minute visit and there's so much to check off on the list. And so how do you get the most bang for your buck with a screening tool? So you really need to um, look at your practice and what your practice needs are. And first of all, any tool you choose should be a validated tool. And you can you know, look at various resources to make sure that it is a validated tool. And that just means that it helps you discriminate between those with the problem and those without the problem. It should be sensitive. It should identify the people who are struggling. And it should also be specific. So it should not identify people who don't have a problem. So as far as being practice dependent, I'll give you an example. I know in our practice, I started to notice that more and more teens were coming back from the emergency room after suicide attempts or with major depression. Our local Department of Mental Health really couldn't get them in fast enough for follow-up. And they were coming back with us with their very worried parents. So I started wondering how could I identify these kids before they got to the point that they were coming back to me from the emergency room. 
Um, and I came across the patient symptom checklist out of Columbia University, and that's otherwise known as the teen screen. And so we started using that to try to identify kids who might be having a lot of social or emotional health issues earlier, and I thought it was very effective. The other group I felt was very common and needed identifying was moms with postpartum depression, um, which can get really severe. We all know that those hormones can really mess, mess with your brain after you have a baby and the sleep deprivation and everything else. Um, and that might manifest in your practice as, as just kind of uber-worried moms or moms who aren't interacting appropriately with their babies. So the next thing we, we implemented was the Edinburgh postpartum depression screen. And that brought up a, you know, a bunch of issues about like who would pay for the code. Are we screening the mom? Are we screening the child? And um, what code are you going to use for that? And so you do, there is a caregiver code. But in general, the tools need to be meaningful but practical. So something that people can complete quickly, but that is also accurate and can be easily discussed with the, with the patient. It should also be scored quickly and accurately um, by either yourself or a clinical assistant. Preferably, I say the clinical assistant because <laughs> we all have, we're all always running behind and have enough to do, I know. I think you've brought up a really good point, Dr. Edwards, that when you're choosing screening tools for your practice, you need to make sure that it is a good fit, that it fits into the flow of your practice, and that it's going to be meaningful for your patients. So I know that there's a couple of resources out there. One that I've uh, looked at a good bit and found helpful is the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ, has a toolkit that you can use to help you as you begin to implement screening tools in your practice. And I know when we were talking earlier, you mentioned to me that there was another toolkit that you often look for, at. For pediatrics, which is what, I'm, of course, I'm most familiar with, Bright Futures through the American Academy of Pediatrics has a great mental health toolkit that has all the screens and has you know, things that you need to think about before implementing screens and, and how to, what to do with the screens when they're positive. So that's a great resource. I also would just, just to add, you know, think about picking tools, choosing tools that might be already integrated into your electronic medical record. So I know in ours, which is Cerner, the PHQ-9 is in there, the patient symptom checklist 17 is there, the GAD-7, which we use for anxiety, is in there, and we can complete those, and it goes directly into the patient's chart, which is nice. So there's no scanning. It also helps you even score. And that's great advice. And for those folks who have EHRs where the screening tools are not already implemented, you know, they can often create a template for a screening tool and, and use that mm -hmm. um, as they screen their patients. So that's great information. Thank you. So now that you have the score and you've implemented the screening tool and you've scored it and you have the information and you, you have a, a positive, what do you do with it? What do you do with that information? So I, I call this the then what question. And it's, it's a really good, it's probably the hardest question. And I get this from my colleagues. Um, I get this from myself. <laughs> like, so, so great, we did the screen, then what? And we discovered pretty quickly in our practice that you really need to be prepared for the then what before you get a positive screen. And so I, I speak from um, actually doing things the wrong way. This is a do as I say, not as I do situation. So before you start screening, you really need to develop a mental health resource sheet. And you may be thinking, but, 
but we don't have any resources in our community. And I really thought the same thing of my community, and I know my community well. But I would argue with you that you have a lot more around you than you think. So just a few things to look, look for. One that I use a lot and recommend a lot is NAMI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Every area has a chapter of that, and they have champions, and they have people that really know about the whole mental health landscape. So just starting with giving a call to them and saying, hey, can you help me find some resources? I actually went out for coffee or lunch with a few counselors locally, got to know them, got to know their approach to treating um, adolescents and patients. Parent support groups are, you can find those sometimes through churches or through schools or through synagogues or mosques. Boys and Girls Clubs, Girls on the Run, things like after-school programs like that are really, really helpful. And then think about apps. Um, there are some actually some excellent apps available. One that one of my patients introduced me to is called What's Up, um, and it's a great app that, that has some grounding tools for patients. It has breathing techniques, ways that you can do some journaling, and that's just a great when they can't immediately get to a counselor, kind of showing a patient that. There's also a text for counseling tool that I recommend quite a lot called, it's 741-741, and um, patient can text and say help or listen. They could be at lunch with their friends during high school and feeling like they're about to have a panic attack and then be texting a counselor, a professional counselor, someone in the United States will always answer. Those are great resources, and I think... As I heard you talk about those resources, you mentioned meeting some of the folks in the in the community for coffee and, and talking about it. But I know that one thing you've done in your practice is also to meet with the community agencies and your your the other clinicians in the practice so that you know what their workflow is and you know what services they can offer and how you can connect with those resources. So I often use that and, and talk to folks about making sure to reach out and connect with their resources in the community so that they're sure of what the services are with those resources. So. Yeah, we used to call that our community care conference. And, um, we, you know, just bringing in resources that people in your practice might not be familiar with, I think is a really useful thing to do. I was just going to add also for the then what question, I think even just forgetting about resources for a minute, look into yourself and realize that you have a lot to offer a patient just by being present in that exam room and acknowledging what's going on with them. And, and this, I, I use something called the HELP mnemonic um, that I learned from a friend of mine in a quality improvement group that I work with. But, and the HELP mnemonic goes like this. You tell a patient, you know, they've just done a really difficult, uh, they've told you some really difficult information. They may be suicidal or really, really sad. There is help. There is hope. The H's. The E's. Um, you educate them. You are not alone. This is a normal response to they might have had a recent breakup or something really significant has helped and that happened in their family. It wouldn't be normal to be to be just going along like things are just fine in, in that situation. Um, so telling them that their response is is expected. Empathy, I know this is hard. Language and loyalty, the L's, this is not your fault. Um, loyalty, I'll stick with you. I, you know, I may refer you out, but I'm here. I'm going to go through this with you. And then the, there are three P's, permission, partnership, and notifying the parent or caregiver to 
help look, help the patient look for ways to feel better and find ways to feel better. Um, and then finally, we have a co-located counselor now in our office, and I wish we had 10. <laughs> um, and she doesn't really even just, she doesn't do counseling necessarily for every patient she sees, but brief interventions and sometimes just helping us to provide resources, helping us to respond. And we all learn a lot from her as far as how to interact and how to respond to patients who are in distress. Thanks so much for sharing that. So I think as practices move forward, implementing screening tools, you know, that is a really good mnemonic Mm -hmm. to use uh, with their patients to let them know that you really understand what they're going through and you are going to help them through that. And it's going to strengthen that relationship with your patient. I've had patients come back a week later, you know, well, because we'll see them back in a week and make sure that they're getting into counseling. And the the parent and the child say, I already feel better. (laughs) Just from having that, I talked about this. Right. You know, something's going to happen. That's, That's really awesome. As you begin to implement screening tools in your practice, did most providers agree that it was important? And did you have any pushback from your providers or your staff? So I would say we had a lot of pushback because we all know that in a 15 or 20 minute appointment, sometimes it gets double booked during flu season. We have too much to do. We have too much to cover. In pediatrics, we have million little guidelines and talking about nutrition and car seats and sleep and everything else. So there was a lot of pushback. We can't do one more thing. And my answer to that was, we can't not do one more thing. If you're talking about a mother who's severely depressed or might be hearing voices telling her to kill her child or a 12-year-old who might be suicidal, we, we can't not ask these difficult questions. And so even though it's, it seems like more work, sometimes it actually saves time because you realize you don't have to address those things. Or it helps you address them. It helps you avoid that doorknob question where you're just about to leave the room and the mom's like, you know, he's failing school. He won't get out of his bedroom. He's being aggressive to other kids, you know, whatever. As you're just, you think you finished that well check. And then there's that next half hour <laughs> that you have to spend. And then also we, we realize that there's actually some financial benefit to doing this screening, that even though payment may not be huge, you do get payment from Medicaid pretty consistently. In South Carolina, it's just maybe 7 or $8 a screen, but um, that, that actually adds up when you're doing it universally on every patient. And I think maybe that's part people don't want to talk about a little bit because, you know, it, it, it kind of is, we're looking at, at the financial aspect of it when we all know this is the right thing to do. But it's also very important to your practice and, and to, to the viability of your practice to pay attention to the coding and understand the reimbursement structure for some of the screening tools that you might use. I think it's so powerful what you just said when you said to your partners that you can't not do one more thing because you can't not pay attention mm-hmm. to the patients and the and the family's emotional well-being. So really powerful words there. Thank you, Dr. Edwards. So as I was thinking about this, I, I wondered about how you engage your patients and your parents and how are they asked when they're, I mean, how do they react when they're asked to complete these screening tools? Because some of them have some very personal information in them that, that folks may not want to share. So how do you approach your 
your families and your patients? I would say for the most part, parents are actually relieved to have some of these questions asked, especially with more and more information coming out about depression rates in teens. But, you know, there are some, I think, who feel like it's a sensitive question and, you know, maybe are reluctant to address it. Or also, if if the child really has no problem, everything's a zero and everything's perfect, some get upset about that extra charge on their well check, especially if they're privately insured. Sometimes that's that's not a part of a bundled, you know, covered well check. And they may get a, a $20 bill for that. So that can be a pain, but but I think for the most part, when we explain, and often we have the clinical assistant explain this ahead of time, this is something that's become standard of care. It's really important to your child's health. Most people understand that, and I think it's becoming more and more mainstream and, and accepted. I think you're right there, and, and I think as you get those calls into your practice where somebody may not fully understand you know, why they're getting a charge for that screening tool. It's important to have some scripting for your staff Mm -hmm. so that they can address that with the parents and let them know that it it really is important so that you can take the best care of the patient as as you see them. As you started to use screening tools, did you have a plan for how it was going to fit into the current workflow? And maybe you could share with our listeners what the pitfalls were. Okay, so there there were some pitfalls, and I think pitfalls. I mean, I think process is extremely important, and um, you really need to focus on that. It's it's so easy. You'll hear something. I always get so excited by things, and you just want to jump right in and start doing it. But take that time to really look at the process, how your office functions, and also to change things up if something's not working. So first, initially, when we started to do screening, we had our registration staff give it out. But if you're doing things like depression screening in kids or, or sometimes in a, in a mother depression screening in her um, and they're sitting out in a waiting room with, with other parents or, or if a child's sitting with their parents, they may not be completely honest. Or if you're doing something like substance abuse screening, um, we worry about are they giving us a really valid answers to, to our questions. So now we, we do it in the exam room. We have the clinical assistant give it out. We put our screens on a clipboard for the child. With We have an eating questionnaire. What what types of foods do they eat? We use the 5210, which is a whole other podcast. <laughs> and that's a great questionnaire to kind of get us do some some motivational interviewing with our patients. So they might fill out that, they might fill out the craft screen, they might fill out a depression questionnaire. And honestly, sometimes it does um, slow you down in your practice to have a positive, but for the most part, I think it, it actually kind of gets you to the core of the matter or allows you to, to skip to other things that might be more important to that patient's health at that time. As for scoring also, I encourage people to have clinical assistance score or, you know, you, to choose questionnaires that are very easy to score, I generally end up scoring my own because clinical assistance gone by the time I get into the exam room and the patient's been filling it out while they're waiting. And they're usually quick to score, and then we can go over the answers. But I'll give one example here of, of a time that we didn't do this right, and that was a colleague of mine was seeing a boy who had scored very, very high in the patient symptom checklist and about 13 years old. And my colleague had recommended that this, this child go see a counselor and the adoptive parent said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll do that. 
And the next thing I know is about six months later, I was asked to refill the sibling of this child's medication early because the child had taken all 30 of the sibling's medication in an attempt at suicide. And what we realized with that was that my colleague, when I look back, had done everything, had referred to counseling, the parent had discussed the whole situation, but the parent didn't go. Told me, you know, when I called, I just didn't think that this was a really big deal. I thought that the child was over-endorsing. And so with that, we use that to kind of come up with what we call our mental health or our teen depression toolkit. And that involves a calming tool that we go over with the patient, you know, looking at it's a list of things that might help a, a child calm down or feel better, just feel good. Might be listening to music or exercising, going on a run. And I ask them to look at that while I go talk to the patient and to the parent in another room. Um, and then also we give the parent a parent safety checklist and a referral sheet with counselors. And then we arrange to see the patient back in one week so that we make sure that connections are being made, that the child is feeling better, so that we have it this more as a process or a policy in our office rather than just saying, you know, go forth and find a counselor. That's great. So I think what I've heard today is that it's really important to find screening tools that are relevant to your practice. They're meaningful but practical. We don't want something that's too long that's going to take, you know, 10 minutes to score because, you know, you've only got that 15 or 30 (laughs) minute visit. So you've already taken up too much time scoring it and that you want to be ready with resources for those patients who screen positive and to be able to support them and provide them with resources that are going to get them through whatever it is they're dealing with. And so as you're doing screening tools to think about the coding for the screening tools and to be ready with that so that you know how to properly code these so that you'll get reimbursed for some of your time. All of this has been great tips for our listeners, Dr. Edwards, and I so appreciate you being here today. For a practice that's just beginning to implement screening tools, what would you say your top three tips are? I think, you know, we kind of got at those. The the number one thing is developing that resource sheet, um, referral sheet ahead of time. Get to know the counselors and psychiatrists in your area and other resources and put them all on a single or maybe a two-sided sheet of paper. So that's the first thing, resources ahead of time. The second thing would be to develop a detailed process. Who's going to give out the screen? When will it be given out? Who is going to score it? And how will a positive be handled? And then the third thing would be to develop a coding sheet. So make sure you have your code straight so that you can be reimbursed for your time and your expertise in handling mental health issues. So a behavioral health screen is usually a 96127. That includes Vanderbilt scales, depression scales, things like that, or an anxiety screen. Developmental screening is a 96110. A caregiver screen, things like the Edinburgh depression screen, is a 96161. And those can be found in American Academy of Pediatrics toolkits, or I'm sure other specialties also have coding recommendations. So as our listeners go forth, they are armed with a lot of information that's really going to help them and their patients as they implement screening tools in their practice. Dr. Edwards, we can't thank you enough for sharing your experiences and advice with us today. I know that others will benefit from the information you've shared. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. For more podcasts in our series, visit the practice support section on the Charlotte AHEC website, www.charlotteahec.org.